servant. So let's uh, we'll pray. Let's pray one more time. Pray for me. This is going to be, uh, I think, an easy message, but it's like sometimes the simplest messages are the most uh, convicting. At least with me, that's how that works. So let's pray, and we'll dive into the Word. Heavenly Father, we uh, again bow our heads and our hearts to you. Jesus, you are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am, the Alpha and the Omega. You are the one that declares the end from the beginning. You are Almighty God. You are our Savior, our kinsman Redeemer, our big brother, the firstborn of many brethren. We love you. We worship you. We serve you and you alone. We pray that you would open eyes and ears this morning, that your spirit would fill this place, that you would fill us again to overflowing. Father God, that we would uh, just be broken and yielded vessels to what you would have us say, have what you would say this morning to us. Help, help us to change our lives. Help us not to just hear these things to acquire knowledge about you, Father, but we want to be transformed to be made like you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Anthony read, he said, the second candle we light is the Bethlehem candle. And it reminds us that Jesus was born in a humble fashion as a servant. So today, we really want to focus in on Jesus, the servant. But the Bethlehem issue is like, well, so how is this tied to him being a servant? If we're not careful, we just think it's like that city is the humbling fashion of Jesus' birth. But actually, there's a prophecy in, in Micah 5.2. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. So there's this prophecy in, in the book of Micah that says this anointed ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. This is great, but what else? Is, does anyone know what Bethlehem is known for besides this? Who, do, you, do you know who is from Bethlehem besides Jesus being born there? David. King David. King David. Uh, his father was a Bethlehemite, and David was from there. David was anointed king in Bethlehem. Bethlehem actually also goes by the name the city of David. Right? So the idea that Jesus' family lived in a town. Does anyone know the town Jesus grew up in? Yeah, Nazareth. Nazareth. Yeah, he's a Nazarite, a Nazarene. And it's, uh, I don't know if it's a Nazarite or Nazarene. I think it's Nazarene. Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> like, get it together. You're supposed to be a pastor here. Yeah, but Jesus is from a town called Nazareth. But the census happens. And they go into Bethlehem. It's not by chance, right? Because the great king, like if Israel has one famous king, who is it? It's King David. And David is from Bethlehem. And so now Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem is also where um, uh, the book of Ruth is set, right? Ruth and Boaz, who were in the lineage of David, right? So that whole story takes place in Bethlehem. And so Jesus' family finds himself there. And it says that they were, there was no room for them at the end. Now, how much do how much you want to bet if you had enough money, there would be enough room at the end? Never want to take a wager on Because that's just how life works, right? If you have enough money, there's always a room. Uh, I travel for a living. Uh, on, on a really busy year, I think my busiest year, I did 240, 250 nights in a hotel. Like, I'm gone a lot. Uh, COVID really slowed that down, so it's nowhere near that. But in a really, on a normal year, I'm, I sleep in a hotel bed 200 nights a year. From China, South America, all across the United States, Canada, I just 
Wherever work sends me, I go there and I sleep in bed. And I've been to places where, like, if something big is like a road, like you go to Texas and there's a rodeo going on, you're not getting a hotel room. But because I stay so many nights in a hotel per year and I travel for a living, there is always a hotel room for my leave. I don't mean to flex, but if you need a hotel room, <laughs> I can get a hotel room. Because there's always a room there for people like me. And it's not because I'm, I'm not rich. But they save it for people like me because they, if I switched from Marriott to Hilton, they would just lose thousands and thousands of, of my work dollars that I spent on hotels. Does that make sense? So when I think about Jesus' birth and there's no room at the end, is this is a wild scene, is we know that Jesus' family is poor. We know this also because of the sacrifice that they bring, that they bring the smallest sacrifice commanded for people that don't have any means. So Jesus is, is coming into the world in a family that can't get him a room. It's not because the rodeo was in Bethlehem. The census was there, and the more important people had booked these places, and nobody would open up a home or anything to them, so they got put in a, in a stable. Right, and it says he was placed in a manger. So there's a picture. Let's put this up here, Mr. Lee, if you would, please. Uh, this is a picture I got. Maybe. There it is. So the image we get of a manger, of uh, you know, we have our little nativity <coughs> set, and it's a wood one. Excuse me. We have these beautiful wood ones where they're stuffed with hay. I'm here to tell you right now, if you don't learn anything from today, is Jesus' bed was not made of Hobby Lobby, right? <laughs> this is probably what it looked like. It was made out of clay. It was a permanent fixture. And it's a feed trough. But really, a manger is a, is, a, is a very fancy word for feed trough. It's where the pigs ate, the horses ate, the cattle ate, whatever animals was in this barn. Now, could you imagine having your child and laying it in that? Obviously, it didn't have rain, rusty water in it. This is, this, is a, this is not a normal beginning, right? So we understand, like, the, the man who created, the man, the God who created this world, coming into this world, is entering this world in the most humble of means. Amen? It's interesting. In Luke 132, it says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This idea that the one who would sit on this throne is lying in a feed trough in the town of Bethlehem. That's a humbling beginning. Amen? If you really just stop and meditate on it, the one who would sit on the everlasting throne enters this world laying in a feed trough. Now, I was supposed to make an announcement at the beginning, Treehouse Kids, you are, if you take notes, and you see Miss Chris, you will get a prize. So make sure you're taking notes. So you could write a note like, Jesus, he was born, was laid in a manger which means that's the spot they fed the animals. This isn't on your screen, but in John 1.45, to make matters worse, Jesus goes back home, and he's from his hometown of Nazareth. And it says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and the one the prophets foretold, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So his humble beginnings of living, uh, being born into a manger, but then he goes to a town that literally means he's from the sticks. Jesus, it's almost like God goes out of his way to make sure that Jesus has nothing about him that can be bragged about. Mm -hmm. Amen? Do you see that? Mm -hmm. He is from, I'm from a town called Coos Bay. Has anyone heard of Coos Bay, Oregon? 
Oh, because oh, I told you about it. Yeah, you told us about it. If you didn't know me, had you had anyone heard of Coos Bay, Oregon? Yeah. Anthony, what is up? How do you know Coos Bay, Oregon? Steve Prefontaine? My man. He's the only famous guy. You too? Yes. Steve. My dad went to high school with him. Not a joke. You know Steve Prefontaine? My dad went to high school. He's a famous runner who died in a car crash in 1974. He's the only famous guy from my hometown. A runner who died in 1974, so it tells you how famous he was. Went to University of Oregon. You should look him up. There's a great movie in the 70s. Uh, but, all right. We're here to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Anyways, Coos Bay is a very humbling place. There is not a lot going on there. This is a logger town, a longshoreman town. So it's right on the coast of southern Oregon. Summertime high, about 62 degrees. It just doesn't get hot. Uh, but it is a big running town. Apparently you guys know that. A lot of runners there. But... Um, there's nothing going on in Coos Bay, Oregon. I hate to tell it to you. Has anyone been to Coos Bay, Oregon? You've been to Coos Bay? I love Oregon. Okay. You don't count. You're my wife. Anyway, you got to admit there's nothing going on there, right? Is there anything going on in Coos Bay, Oregon? There's nothing going on there. So it's like that. So when I went out into the world and I went to college and I, I go into the Air Force and it's like, oh, where are you from? It's in Coos Bay. Nobody can just not cool. Like you, if you ever met somebody from New York City and you were kind of drawn to them, like man, that's kind of cool. You know? Chris is from Roswell. That was cool. It's not cool. <laughs> it's not cool once you know Roswell, but if you heard of it, you've heard of it. But you get what I'm saying. So Jesus, being he's he's born in this major, then he, he's from Nazareth, and this town just has a terrible reputation. It's like what is coming out of Nazareth? It's like you know, it's a, this is redneck city. That's where he is from. And if we could glean anything of this on a, on a serious note, if we can glean anything from Jesus' humble beginnings, is that your conditions, what you're surrounded with, is not a reflection of who you are. Amen. Some of you have very rough beginnings. And, and by nature, I tend to make light of things and make jokes about things as just how I view the world. But some of your circumstances were pretty dire. And it's sometimes it's hurtful to think about that you were not born in any kind of means. Maybe you didn't have the best family scenarios growing up. Life sometimes, like, I, I, sometimes is disposition. I, I grew up uh, pretty poor when I was younger, the oldest of five children. But my disposition in life, and I just tend to laugh through life, and I'm an optimist. That I know people that go through the same things, and it's not like that. Right? It's, everything is dark and it's tough. But your value should never be placed upon your circumstances because Jesus was the most valuable thing that has ever come into this world. He created this world. The Bible says that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. So the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Jesus owns everything that is on this planet. It's all his by rights. Through creation and through inheritance. It's his. He can do it as he pleases. And yet he's born into a manger and is from a stick town. So I would encourage you not to think about your value in terms of where you're from and what you have. Because Christ has put in each one of us this spark of life that only belongs to you. Is that you are so unique and wonderfully made. There's no one like you. And that's not just rhetoric. This is what the Bible says about you. It says, before I formed you, I knitted you in the womb, I knew you. That you are so unique and so precious to God. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows when you sit up and lie down. He knows your broken heart. He knows what makes you tick is because he put that in you. He knows 
your desires, your passions, your disappointments. He knows. So don't think that he's forsaken you or he doesn't care because of your humble beginnings or means. Because Jesus also walked that same walk. Amen? Amen. So what we want to focus on today is his servanthood and how that relates to us. So we're going to look at two scriptures. They're longer scriptures, but they're, they're stories. And the Bible is a story, right? Like it's a collection of stories. And stories are how we all view the world. Why, why do we love movies so much? They tell stories, right? Isn't it funny that we can quote all these famous movies, but it's hard to quote the Bible. Is anyone else like that? Actually, that was the greatest conviction for me when I started memorizing that. I was like, man, I can, I can recite What About Bob. I can, I can go in, I can walk on to Bill Murray's part right now What About Bob. Ace the audition. I can do Dr. Leo Marvin, too. Do you, you guys know What About Bob? Okay. Jack, I know you know what's up. <laughs> but we all have movies like that, right? Like, I, my existence is literally just quoting movies at this point in my life. I mean, that's just what I do. Like, and it's... I'll be up here quoting the randomest stuff. My wife's like, she goes, nobody watches Three's Company. Stop quoting. <laughs> Stop quoting Jack Tripper. He's not funny. And it's like, oh, I'm, you got it. So that's hilarious. He is funny. <laughs> Anyways, she's, she's, she's going to die on the house. She's like, nobody knows who Jack Tripper is. He's the man. Anyways. Sorry if you did your first time here. I'm not a fan. <laughs> when I was in the Air Force, uh, I, got a, I lived off base. I was single. And I lived with uh, two girls. They were sisters. And they were, one of the girls was in the Air Force. And they asked me to be the roommate because they said, uh, of all the creeps in the Air Force, you look the least creepy. <laughs> That's high praise when you're a single guy in the military. So I lived with two girls. And it was completely platonic. I wasn't a Christian yet. Um, uh, so I had a room. And I, and I always thought, it's like, this is just like Three's Company. It's like, I'm Jack Tripper. This is never going to work out. So. Is Mr. Roper there? Yeah, Mr. Roper was, yeah, actually, there was a very Mr. Roper kind of guy. Anyways, <laughs> get sidetracked. What are we talking about? Okay, we're looking at two scriptures. Uh, why did I even talk about that? Movie quotes, yes, uh, doing scripture. Anyways, stories. There you go. So there's two stories. And if you ever spend any time with Trey, so let's get back on track, is he's very big on talking about stories. Because you don't have to memorize the Bible, but you should memorize the stories. Right? Because it's not about necessarily a word for word, but it's the heart and the intent behind. Amen? We have all these different translations of the Bible. It's like, well, which one's the best? Well, it's best is which ones you read. Because we're after the core principle here. Now, there's a couple of very bad ones that we can talk about. But those are very rare. You know, I mean, like the ESV, the King James, New King James, New American Standard. Look, they're telling the same story, right? We don't want to get caught up on this. We're after the, in the military, we would call it the commander's intent. What's the intent of the story? So that's what we want to look at. So let's start in Matthew 20. And it's, it's, this is a real famous story. And it's, this, is not, uh, this is not a parable or anything. Right? This actually happened. Matthew 20, verse 20. Has anyone ever heard of a helicopter parent? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus had two disciples, and there is a helicopter parent there. It's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, it's interesting is the Zebedee parents actually get uh, mentioned a lot because there's actually, it mentions the father of the Zebedees. So these two parents are very actively involved in two of these disciples' lives. Now here, listen to this. Verse 20, Matthew 20, 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, so we got two Zebedees, came up to him with her sons, came up to Jesus. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. 
Okay, we'll pause for a second. This is a bold question. You're going to talk to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we know that Jesus has a throne. And she goes, hey, i got two boys. Imagine this big kingly setting, right? We have the chair. Can one sit on your right and one on your left? It takes a lot of guts to ask these things, right? I would automatically assume that those chairs are probably taken. I would never ask for my daughter and my son. It's like, Jesus, can Chase and Hannah sit? Uh, no. I mean, this is, I mean, this is just insanity to me. And Jesus, verse 23 says, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? Classic Jesus. A question, you ask him a question, he hits you with a question that's out of left field, right? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. Pause here. We're not going to preach on this, but the cup he's talking about is his death. Because yeah. Jesus is about to drain the dregs of the cup of judgment of God. It's going to cost him his life. And so he's like, he's like, hey, this seat is for, you know, I'm going to this chair because I'm going to die is basically what he's saying. And then the, and then the sons of Zebedee like, yeah, Jesus, we'll drink of the same cup. They're oblivious to what Jesus is talking about at this point. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to drink the cup. Wink, wink, you're going to die too. They don't know that. But he says this, he says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the 10 are the other disciples, right? We have 12 disciples. They were indignant at the two brothers. Fair enough. But Jesus called to them, to him, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here Jesus breaks down this idea that he, he points to the, the intent of the sons of Zebedee's heart and the mother's heart is they want to sit to the right and left because those are seats of power. The seats of prestige. Seats of honor. Jesus said, look, these seats of honor, they're not mine to give, they're the Father's to give. Right? He says, if you really want those seats, you know what you need to do? You need to serve. You need to be like a slave or a bondservant, is a better word, right? Indentured servant. That's how you get those seats. Like, it's not an official appointment where you just get a rule just because you know something. The way up is the way down in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Now, we want to we look at this story. We want to we think critically about it. Not critically to tear it apart, but we want to see how does this apply to us. And the first thing I want to tell you is that Jesus did not run to power. Now, we know this. We talked about his humble birth, his humble beginnings. Jesus wasn't born into a rich family. Do you think there was other uh, descendants of David in the city that had wealth? Yes. Yet he comes through Mary, right? Single mom at the time, right? Like rough beginnings. He could have came into this world a number of ways. He came into it like this, in humility. And when he came of age, what was Jesus' job? And this is a good note for the kids. Jesus had a job. What was Jesus' job? Jesus was a carpenter. The carpenter is someone who works with wood, right? I'm not saying that because I think you're dumb, but there's kids in there. Come on, take it easy. Might be a new, might be new. It's like, this guy really told me what a carpenter was. But he works with his hands, right? Jesus is a blue-collar guy. 
Now, when Jesus came onto the scene, was his plan to run for a political office? Did he, uh, did he uh, try to raise up an army to defeat Rome? These are all going to be no questions, by the way. But I'm, I want you to really think about it. What did Jesus start doing when he started his ministry? Serve. Serving people. How do you serve people? He fed them. He clothed them. He loved he them, them. Healed them. Service looks a lot like love, doesn't it? Because mm. if we talked about love, it's really service. I think service and love can be interchangeable. Because if you really want to serve somebody, you meet their needs. Love meets needs. Right? The Bible says, how do you love your brother if you see that they're, they're cold and they're naked and they have no food? And you have the ability to feed them and to clothe them. How does the love of God abide in you? So service is love and love is service. Because love is not an emotion, it's an action. There's a John Mayer song that says, love is a verb. You know what a verb is? That's the action. So saying you love something really does nobody any good. We can say all we want. But expressing love through meeting needs, that's love. Amen? And that's power. So Jesus did not run to power. Now, Trace and I were talking about this this morning. We know for a fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. Now, I'm not saying by faith. Is even people that aren't Christians, they know that Jesus existed. There's just historical proof. They find all these records. Even atheists, uh, uh, like Bible scholars, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually non-believing Bible scholars. Uh, there's one man, his name is Bart Erdman. He's not a Christian, but he's a Bible scholar. But even people that don't believe acknowledge that Jesus Christ, well, we call him Christ, was a real human being. And he really did uh, have a message of nonviolence. And it's interesting that this guy exists, and he preaches this radical message of nonviolence and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor. Like, we, we know what his message is. And that thousands of years later, we're still talking about this guy. Even nonbelievers know who he is. Now, we think that's because he's the Son of God. And I believe he is the son of God. But there's no denying the impact that this man had throughout history. He got to power by not seeking power. He went to the cross to die. He loved people, and now people follow him in the millions. To their grave they followed this guy. How many people give their lives for the name of Jesus? Throughout history since that guy walked on this earth. All this original 12 that followed him all died following him. The Apostle Paul, the early church, all martyred, gruesome deaths. You think these people wanted to follow an untrue myth? They followed a real human being, the real message that's impacting the world thousands of years later. So much so, the story of Jesus Christ, can, we know how it works because we're Christians, but it changes the heart. There's something miraculous about this message. But this man was not a political figure. This man was not a great leader of an army. This man led no great rebellion. His message was, it was love. Now, I'm not trying to sound like a hippie here, but really think about this. When he says you must serve, Jesus was a servant. How many Christians today run towards power? There's no political solution for the spiritual problem. Right? People that scream the loudest at the Christians are the ones that... It's wild to me. It's talk. Christianity is service. It's an act. 
Saying you're something does not make it so. It's who you are. It's what you do. It's service and love. They're mixed together. And it's not works. We don't, we don't do this to earn God's favor. We already have it in Jesus. But we do this because we are a reflection of him. Amen. You know what Christian means? Christ-like one. <coughs> Little Christians. We're the imitators of him. Love and service. Jesus said the greatest will serve. The problem is people want to be great. Even now, people want to be great. And they don't do it through service. There's a lot of churches that have a lot of problems because the pastor runs his little fiefdom. Have you ever been to a church where the it's got leadership problems? Where the so-called man of God is all-powerful? That's not Christ. That's not Christ, friends. If you go to a church, if you hopefully we're not like that, but if you find it, I've been to a church like that, where that, what that guy says goes. It's my way or the highway. And the man of God is to be served and to be feared and to be revered. I think the man of God should be revered, but I think that should be through his actions and service. People revered him for that. But to command it is not Christ. Because Jesus never demanded that kind of fealty. He does once you, you claim his name, right? But when he's out amongst the people and it, he's loving, he's forgiving, and he's serving. Amen. Amen. But he does tell us what the cost is if we're going to serve him. So, if you're taking notes, I would say beware of Christians who are not servants. Mm-hmm. I would say the hallmark of a Christian is his or her servant attitude. Beware of Christians that are always running to power because Jesus always ran from it. Whenever they were about to if you even, let's, let's, let's not talk about Jesus, let's talk about the Apostle Paul. You remember he was performing these wonderful miracles and they were, they lifted him up and they were going to, you know, they just, they wanted to start worshiping him. And then he runs away from He runs away from the celebration because he wants all eyes on Jesus. Think about how many Christians want to make their name great. And it's all about them. It's all about their ministry. It's all about their platform. It's not Christ, friends. Some people are just ignorant and they're in error. Like, you know, we all make mistakes. But you should think about that. And if you're like that, if it's all about you, you're doing this thing wrong. Because it's not about you. Once you belong to Jesus, it's not about you. And the toughest thing to overcome as Christians is to become a servant. Because by nature, we want it to be about us. We want to be served. We want it to be about us. And our desires and our needs. And what are my dreams? What are my passions? Jesus asks you to lay that down for him, to lay it down for other people. And it doesn't mean those needs won't be met. I, I've found, I, I've been a Christian for a while now, friends, and I found out when you lay those down, God finds a way to meet those needs in you. Amen. Because he cares about you too. Amen. So when he asks you to lay down these things to be a servant to all men, does that mean that God is forsaking you and your dreams and your passions? No. God gave you those dreams and passions and desires for a reason as well. He made you. We started with what if he asks you to lay it down for the sake of others? Does God leave you unfulfilled? No, I don't. it doesn't work like that. People are scared. It's like, hey, if I become a servant and I really start putting other people before myself, if we're really being honest, you ask, what about me? Mm-hmm. You do. I know you do because I do. You have to trust him. God will not leave you nor forsake you. And it is tough. People will walk on you. They will take advantage of you. Because they took advantage of him. 
I'll be honest with you, I've when I work really hard on serving people, as I do get taken advantage of too. It seems thankless when you just serve and serve and nobody says anything, nobody cares. And then they start to expect it. And that's the worst, right? Has anyone been in that? You're serving because you love them and then when you don't do it, they're like, why aren't you doing this? I start giving you attitude about it. It's, like, well, it's tough, friends. Christianity is not an easy road. But that's what's required of us. Look what they did to Jesus. They killed him. For what? Feeding people? He said some things that people didn't like? He healed people? He loved people? Right? Accepted people for who they were? You know what our solution was? Let's kill this guy. It's insanity to me. So watch out for Christians who are not servants. Watch out for people who shout they're a Christian while they run to power. Beware of Christians in spiritual abuse who demand to be served and to be respected, who hide behind scriptures like touch not my anointing, like they were King David themselves. There's a lot of shenanigans happening in the Christian world today that should cause quite a bit of alarm. A lot of things being done in the name of Christ that is not Christ. Don't confuse the two. Be careful of false teaching. Be careful of false signs and false wonders. Friends, we're getting to a point, I think we're heading towards a point, the Bible says that towards the end times that even the elect could be confused, be deceived is actually the word it uses, by the tricks and traps of the enemy. And what I'm seeing as a, as a pastor and someone who studies the word is Christianity is at a crossroads in the United States. And there's a branch of it that is being hijacked and it's being made out for what it not is. And I think that's the road to deception. The Bible says that there's a falling away towards the end before Jesus' return. This idea of people leaving the faith. And I think it's because of that, because Christianity will start to be awfully ugly. But if we pause for a second and we think about Jesus, is Jesus ugly? No. We talk about his ministry, because he just loves people. Mm-hmm. Right? If somebody came to him who was a prostitute, did Jesus cast her away? No. no. A Samaritan? Right? Somebody of mixed racial heritage? Different religions? Did Jesus... Spit all over that woman? No. No, no, he didn't do that. When somebody needed something, did Jesus ever say no? Even when he said no, he said yes. Woman, these crumbs, no, you know, this isn't for you. You're a, basically said, this is not for the dogs. And the woman's like, hey, the dogs even eat the crumbs, right? And Jesus is like, darn it, you got me. Give her what she wanted. Jesus doesn't turn people away. You come to him, right? He opens the door. And yet, that's not the image being painted of us. So friends, what do we do? That means we double down on being servants. That means the true followers of Jesus have to let their light shine. Because as the world starts to paint a different picture of who Jesus is and his followers, is there has to be a remnant, the Bible says. God always has a chosen remnant. His name that will not fail them. That will testify to who Jesus really is. And I pray that as you and I. And it starts with servanthood. I, I, just, please hear me. Christianity to me starts with servanthood. Amen. When somebody introduced Jesus to me, I, I received the message. But all these wonderful people started serving. <coughs> what I mean is they started feeding me meals. They started filling up my gas tank. They, they loved me. They started, it's amazing. They came around me. They started meeting all these wonderful needs I didn't know I had. Fellowship. And it kept me in the faith as they matured and they grew 
I don't know if you have so many testimonies, but it's just amazing, this servanthood. So here's the question. As a heart checker, where are you at in your, in your servant walk? Really think about this. How are you serving people? How are you serving God's, God's people? How are you serving those you work with? Your bosses? Your spouse? You know, this is, this is not only for other people. The Bible says, submit one to another. So we, we are, churches always shout a lot about the, uh, shout a lot. we always talk about like, wives submit to husbands. Has anyone heard that scripture before? That's a rad scripture to use for your wife appreciation. Like, let's meditate on the scripture, sweetie. Wives submit to your husbands. <laughs> but you know, the Bible says submit one to another. Did you know that? Yeah. That we're to submit to each other? Do you think it's unbiblical if I submit to my wife on some things? Because you'd be wrong, because the Bible actually tells me to do that. I'm not Ron Burgundy here, right? Where it's like, men have bigger brains than science, right? It's not science. My wife is better at a lot of things than I am. So I defer to her. Does that mean I've given her my male headship? No, it just means I have a brain. And I know she's better than this. So she makes a decision. And I submit to her because I trust her. Right? That doesn't mean I've shirked any responsibilities here. I serve her. Like Jesus served the church. Now, I don't do it perfectly, and I'm sure she will testify to that. But I do my best. Well, I can't even say I do my best. I try to remember to do my best. To serve my wife. To love her. To serve her. To lay down my wants and desires. To make sure that her wants and desires are met. And it could be as simple as doing the dishes or cleaning the house. It could be as simple as that. We talked about this time. Like, I have a career that, that pays my mortgage. Pays my mortgage. And I, I always prayed when I was younger for a job that allowed me to, my wife doesn't have to work. This is mine. This is me. Okay? I'm not saying I'm against women working. But this was my desire. I wanted to make enough money when my wife doesn't have to work and I can raise her family. It didn't always work out that way, but I got there. Because I wanted my wife to have a life that she also wanted. If she wants to work, that's great. If she wants to She's in, she's in shows and she sings and she works. But I wanted that freedom for her to serve her. And, I, and I, I'm not making jokes. I'm like, that's honest to God, that was my heart. Because I wanted to be able to serve her. I wanted to be, bear that burden. There's times when she's had to work because I didn't make enough money and she's gratefully and willingly stepped up to do that too. And that's how she served me. right? Instead of me taking the ego hit, she willingly did it because she loves me and she loves the family. She sacrificed for the family. Ladies, you do the same thing. You, you have children. Your life kind of stops for the first 10, 15 years. 18 years. Some people say 18. Yeah, it depends on your kids, right? My kids wanted nothing to do with us after 13, so we got out for Jesus after that. <laughs> but that's sacrifice. That's serving. You serve that little human being because everything's on pause, because the needs of that child come first. That's what that looks like. What about your church? How can you serve your church family? And I don't say this as a weird flex, but Trace and I, for eight years, we've set this church up every single morning that we're here setting the church up. We're the pastors of the church, and we set it up every single morning, not because we want to lord it over people, because we want to serve you. How can we best serve you? Well, where, how can we best serve is where there's a need. 
Whereas there is a need, there's a setup curve. Right? Yeah, boy, I lost you guys from New York. You think about it. How can you serve? Helping with kids is serving. Maybe just greeting people. Getting to know people's names. You know how many people don't know each other's names? My name tag's on my jacket. Learning someone's name. Checking in on people. You don't have to set up. You can do something else. But find something to do and do it in the name of Jesus. Amen? Let's read one more scripture and we'll close. John chapter 13. Let's read John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of, his, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and he tied it to his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one, who has, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on the outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. For if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should also, that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was not a word-only guy. He acted it out. Amen? He's about to go to the cross. Now, washing someone's feet... Raise your hand if you think that's kind of gross. Like right now, 2022, washing another human being's feet. Yeah, Jack. Only Jack and Jared. Lizzie, come on. This is gross. You've never seen my toes. Come on. Like, the Air Force has done a number on my right foot that I'll never get back. And I'm not trying to overshare here, but feet are gross. Now imagine 2,000 years ago, and you're walking. What do you think you're stepping in? Do you think they're, you're wearing boots like this? No. No, they're, they're wearing sandals, right? So a man's feet, they're gnarly. Animal waste, mud, urine, blood. I mean, you name it. Like, the feet are gross. Jesus is like, look, you're clean. If I wash your feet, you're clean. This is, can you imagine the king of the universe wiping that stuff off your feet? Really think of, stop and think about this. That's what service is. It's willing to get in the mud. It's willing to get gross. It's willing to do things. Serving people sometimes is gross like that. Amen? On a side note, have you ever been to a church that wanted to do like a foot washing party where they want to like try to get Yeah. I mean, I don't get down like that, so you'll never see it here. I will fight. I will die on that hill. But yeah, some people go out of the way to do that kind of thing. But I read, I read the story to talk about how Jesus didn't just talk about it. He did it. He's a man of action. We should be men and women of action. 
Service is not a suggestion. It's a way of Christian life. You should write that down. Service is not a suggestion. It's a way of Christian life. If you right now you are living your life for yourself, you're doing it wrong. There's no other way to say it. And it starts somewhere. Don't, don't go whole hog here. and You can't do it all at once. You can't go all in like that. It doesn't work like that. You will break yourself. But start somewhere. Start serving somewhere. Whether it be your spouse, your kids, your home, your job, your church. Find somewhere to serve. Find something that's not about you and be about it. Amen? Amen. I've got one more scripture to read and one last story. Not from the Bible. My story. I didn't grow up in a Christian house. You guys know this. Yeah, I got saved in the Air Force. So I go to church, get married, have kids. And I start to feel God pulling on my heart like I need to do something more with God. And when you don't know, the only thing you can think of at a church, the only job is a pastor. I have no Bible college, I have no qualification. So what I started doing was, is uh, I remember praying, I remember thinking, it's like, I should just help out where I don't even know what my skill set is. I don't even know if I have a skill set. And so you know what the church needed when I first started at church? They needed help on the janitorial staff. They needed somebody to clean up after church. And we didn't have a, a rented room like this. It was a normal church building. So after church, I would clean toilets, I would sweep, I would mop, I would run the vacuum, I would do all these things. And it did happen because honestly, when you're a new Christian, you're stoked to serve. Hopefully, I was very stoked to serve. And I actually really had joy in my heart to do it. And I kind of miss those days because that's a pretty sweet gig. Because mm-hmm. you don't have to be around people. <laughs> you just clean up after And then I was doing that and I did it faithfully. And remember, I'm a newer Christian. I'm not, I'm not trying to gain the system. I'm just glad to know. And I'm being dead serious. Some people do these kind of things like, hey, look at me, look how humble I am, I'm cleaning the toilet. Michael Young was just a stupid guy cleaning toilets and having a great time. Actually, I really like cleaning, to be honest with you. That's kind of a bet to mine. I like cleaning toilets. That's really good. Big fan of cleaning toilets. All right. Next thing I know, I get invited to help out in the children's ministry. Of course, you know the children's ministry always comes calling. There's always holes in the kids' ministry. So I started serving in the nursery. I started serving with the kids. I'm not great in those departments. They didn't last very long, but I started serving them. Then I'm on a worship team. Hey, oh, this guy plays music, so he starts playing on, on the music team. Then I'm maybe one day I'm leading communion, or I'm doing this. And this is over a matter of years. Just serving where the holes are. Eventually an opportunity comes to go to Bible college and to begin to preach or The lead uh, life group I did a halfway house for people getting out of prison. So you start, God just starts opening up all these doors as you develop and grow and mature as a Christian. And it starts with serving wherever I need it. So if you ask me right now, what do I do? Serve where there's a need. Please, I beg you. And now, you're like, well, I'm not, how many people say I'm not called to this? Who cares where you're called to? Serve where you're needed. God will open up a door for you. I promise you. I tell that story about me because that's just, God doesn't want to waste a great gift in you. You're like, I've met Christians like the gift is too great to be wasted helping the kids. I've met people like that. Total shenanigans, right? It's like you want to choke them. I hope that wasn't you, but I don't want to choke you. Especially in a church full of ladies. I don't want to choke anybody. Because <laughs> I will lose I will get choked. Uh, help out. That, that's when God does his greatest need. Right? He, Jesus always went to where he was needed. Right? Not where he was celebrated. Not where people thought he was awesome. Jesus went to where he was needed. And that's what service is for us. Okay? Let's read one last scripture and let's get out of here.
This comes from Philippians 2. Anthony and Anna read this. No, Audrey Furtado read this this morning. It says, Who, through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus took the form of a servant. And I think you should too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,